morning, Bethel. If you could take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 7. As we continue our study through the book of Isaiah, our scripture reading for this morning is going to be chapter 7, verse 10, through chapter 8, verse 8. And so if you're using the Pew Bible, um, you can find that on page 572. Isaiah 7, verse 10, through chapter 8, verse 8. And if you wouldn't mind, um, if you're able to, if you could join me in standing in honor of God's word. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, King Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the, Lord, before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. This is God's word. 
You may be seated as we pray. Okay, so, is God with us? Is God with you? Can be kind of a big picture question as we look back through history. Oftentimes, you know, so-called Christians more than once in history have claimed that God was with them on either side of, of a war or in their crusade or whatever, but it's not just a question out there, it's a very personal question. How do you know if God is with you? I would imagine we all want to know that. I imagine we've all struggled with knowing it, really, experientially. We can doubt whether God is with us. I mean, He hasn't answered my prayer. He hasn't seemed to do anything about these circumstances. And especially when it's repeated and over and over and it seems like I'm asking for the right things, why don't you do anything? Do you care? Do you see? Do you know? Are you with me? Are you for me? And sometimes, slowly, subtly, we can start to write our own unwritten anti-Bible filled with reasons for our doubt, our fear, our lack of confidence in God. So, I hope you've all come wanting to know that God is with you, um, with you because he's for you. And if you want that, then this text that we have in front of us um, in, in, this morning is, is, all, is for you. <laughs> it's for all of us. So we're walking through this series, um, walking through the book of Isaiah in a series. And um, as we've said in weeks past, we're going to have to do some work when we go through the book of Isaiah. If you were paying attention as I was reading the scripture, um, reading for this morning, you're probably thinking, what is going on in here? Okay, there's a lot of confusing things, and we're going to have to dive into some of the history in order to understand what's there. So you, gotta, you can't check out, you've got to engage um, so that we really do go through Palestine in order to get to Wilmington um, and apply these texts faithfully to our lives. So Alex served us so well last week as we studied Isaiah 7, 1 to 9. Um, This section this morning falls right on the heels of what um, Alex preached last week, and so we need to just remember a little bit of what we saw there. So Ahaz was the king of Judah, southern kingdom. Remember, it had been divided after King Solomon. So he's shaking in his boots because of the threat of Israel. Sometimes Israel refers to the whole group of God's people, but sometimes it refers to the northern tribe, and that's what's going on here. So northern tribe, Israel, and Syria, they made an alliance against Assyria, who's up a little further north. They wanted to strengthen their position so that Assyria wouldn't come and crush them, so they figured, hey, Judah should join us. Ahaz was not hip on that. So they figured they would depose Ahaz and install a puppet king to control the territory of Judah down here. Okay? So remember also what Alex explained to us about the character of Ahaz. If you read, you can look at it later, but 2 Kings 16, here's what we read about him. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. 
according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Okay, so this guy not following the Lord like he should have. He was sitting on David's throne. So how does the Lord address this rebel king? Look at verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub. Okay, one of his sons, meaning a remnant shall return. That's what his name means. And say to him, verse 4, trust me. Okay, be careful, be quiet, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint. That's the bottom line. Trust me. I'm the real king. Don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Okay, these two kings that are threatening to depose you. Then down in verse 7, lest as the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. They're not going to overtake you. Within 65 years, they're going to be nothing. And then he says, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So the Lord appeals to Ahaz through Isaiah his prophet and says that all he has to do is trust him Don't take matters into your own hands. Don't try to work the angles to save your skin. See, Ahaz's inclination was to trust Assyria, the strongest dog in the fight. Okay, Ahaz would ultimately decide to send messengers to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant and your son. Literally, this is in 2 Kings 16. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. That's what he did. So how does the Lord speak to Ahaz, his king, the one who's supposed to be representing him over his people in Judah, in light of this faithless track record in the past and his present inclination to trust the king of Assyria more than the king of the universe. We'll look at verses 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 10 to 12, and we'll see. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is the first point in the outline if you're using the, the uh, notes in your bulletin or you can see it up here. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. <laughs> so, Ahaz is totally not walking with the Lord. And the Lord says, ask me for a sign. It's amazing grace, amazing revelation of the character of God that the Lord once again speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah and says, let me bolster your faith with a sign, a token of my willingness and ability to rescue you. Just ask. Ask away. It can be as deep as the grave, Sheol, as high as heaven. Don't ask for something small and insignificant that you might just want to write off if I do it. Ask for something really big. Shoot the moon. So do you see what this reveals about the character of God? (laughs) Sometimes when we read Old Testament stories, we don't know how it quite applies to us. Well, what we can always ask is, is, what does this say about God? What's it say about the character of God? Well, does this say something about the character of God for such a skunk like Ahaz, for God to be so gracious? He's not hiding his willingness and ability to help and protect us. Sometimes that's the way we feel. Okay, so 
just so you get an idea of what the Lord was offering here, there's another king in Isaiah. Fast forward ahead to chapter 38. You don't have to turn there, but Ahaz's son was Hezekiah, right? Do you remember when God did a sign for Hezekiah? It was pretty significant, wasn't it? Listen, 38.6, I will deliver you, Hezekiah, and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. It's like a massive horde threatening to just completely take out Jerusalem. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz little tip to dad, unbelieving dad, turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the 10 steps by which it had declined. Turn back time. Ask a sign. Shoot the moon. So the Lord offered this sign to Ahaz because of his good character, because of his commitment to his covenant promises to David, because he, his calls. Listen, here's one of the reasons why he did it. It's because his calls, the Lord's calls, to trust him, it's not just for Ahaz, it's for all of us, are never calls for us to just make a blind leap into the dark. He loves to give us reasons to trust in him with all of our heart. But what did Ahaz say? I will not. And I will not put the Lord to the test. What? Why did Ahaz refuse the sign? Listen to Ray Ortland. God hands him a blank check, but Ahaz refuses to cash it. Kind of like, I, I think I'll pay for this one myself. Why? He doesn't want to trust God. Sure, he puts it in pious language, but it's all quick-thinking, diplomatic hypocrisy. He knows there are strings attached. If he lets God in, God will take control. And for Ahaz, that would mean using God's strategies to get through the crisis and giving God the glory for the outcome. Ahaz proves here that faith can be refused by the will, no matter how strong the evidence is. If we don't want God, we can find a way to make our unbelief sound plausible, even pious. So do you see any seeds of that Ahaz heart in your heart? I've seen that in mine. You see how this response is mock humility, mock piety? It's this proud unbelief that's thinly veiled as mock piety. It's as if God, it's as if Ahaz is saying that he's more spiritual than God. Now listen, if you've suffered much, or at least you perceive that you have, if you feel like you're surrounded by threats, if you feel like or have felt in the past like you've been dealt a poor hand. How do you respond? Has this ever happened? How have you responded? How are you responding if you're there right now? Have you ever wanted to wallow in self-pity? Or if, if you're in it right now, do, do you tend to moan about all that hasn't happened in your life? Things maybe that you, you wouldn't say it this way, but you feel entitled to that God hasn't seen fit to do or provide or protect you from. Do you want to have excuses? So, you know, you can imagine it with faux humility. Well, the Lord just doesn't seem to want to take this away. 
I guess this is just my cross to bear, you know, something like that. Rather than receiving from God the abundant and gracious signs of his love and care, do you want to pay the cost? Do you want to bear the burden? Are you in a position where you wouldn't want your sense of sacrifice and victimhood taken away from you? Then you wouldn't have any reason to complain anymore. Are you in a place, have you ever been in a place where you don't want to be blessed with promises or grace or reasons not to be self-pitying? Then you'd have to yield up your excuses. It's almost if, this is so dangerous, we need to see if there's any seeds of this in our hearts. It's almost as if these people are impervious to the strengthening power of the grace and promises of God. I've had these conversations more than once. Here, Okay, I know the person has had a hard go of it. I'm trying to be as sensitive as possible. I'm not trying to just, you know, throw Bible band-aids at, at bullet holes. But it seems like any encouragement I try to give is met with, yeah, but if the encouragement is biblical, like God, I understand this is really hard, but God has grace for you here. Yeah, but nothing seems to be enough. Nothing seems to be helpful. So if that's you, if, if you've ever seen that dynamic in your heart, do you really want to believe? Or is it more comfortable to have excuses for your unbelief? If you didn't have any excuses, then you'd have to change. So if that's where you are, it's a very dangerous place to be. Ahaz can be a warning to us. Okay, but God always gives warnings in order to give us grace and soften us, right? So, yes, let's let it be a warning, but let's also let it open us up to trust the Lord and see that he actually has a big sign, actually a couple of big signs for us this morning. He wants to show us a sign. (laughs) Show me a sign. Show me something to free us from our unbelief and to build our confidence in him. That's what the Lord wants to do, to show us, to prove to us his utter trustworthiness. Okay, so let's look at the signs he gives. Point number two, a sign will be given Emmanuel. Look at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Which is an ominous shift. If you look back at verse 11, do you see... The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. No. You are wearying my God. Ahaz doesn't want him to be his God. Okay, but what is this wearying thing all about? The point is, you weary the Lord by resisting his grace. We might feel like, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to bother you, Lord, as if that's some kind of humility. No. I mean, do you ever do this? <laughs> Has anyone ever, I'm wired this way in my pride, somebody offers to help you and you, you don't want to be beholden to anyone. So you just, no, 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 no. Okay, well, there can sometimes be some righteous reasons for doing that on a human level. But when we do that with God, we are out of touch with our need and his supply. 
So, we should not resist his grace when it's offered. That's what wearies the Lord. Not not ultimately even our sin. He can handle that. What really wearies him is when we stiff arm his grace. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't want it, Ahaz, but the Lord's going to give it to you anyway. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, now here's what we could do. We could just say, hey, there it is. We know what that's all about. Let's jump to Matthew chapter 1. And then just skip all this confusing stuff afterwards because who knows what that means. I I don't have any of that highlighted with the yellow highlighter in my Bible because I don't know what in the world it means, but at least I know what Matthew 1.23 means. Okay, Um, Matthew 1.23 is important. We're going to get there, but there's actually something that's understandable here. We just need to dive into the history a little bit. So, yes, Christmas story is here, Emmanuel. Okay, Jesus was God with us, but what in the world did this mean in this context? There's all kinds of ink spilled. I'm not going to get into this much on whether the Hebrew word translated for virgin here means virgin or young woman. Okay, the term can mean either, depending on the context. And in this context, I think there's good reason to believe that young woman is the better translation. Okay, look at how the text goes on. He, this son, verse 15, shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. You see what's being said here? Remember beginning of chapter 7? Isaiah goes out to Ahaz with his son, Shear Jashub. Be careful, be quiet. Verse 4, don't fear, don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's the two kings. They're going to burn out really soon. They're no threat. You should have trusted me. I'm giving you a sign even though you foolishly refused it. A young woman will conceive and bear a son, and before that boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, in other words, before the age of accountability, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. In other words, really soon. That's how long this threat that has you shaking like a leaf That's how long it's going to last. Not long at all. So who's this young woman and who's this son called Emmanuel? Look down at chapter 8, verse 1. And listen to the language and how it's parallel to what we just read. Then the Lord said to me, me is Isaiah, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get, okay, verse 3. And I went to the prophetess. Isaiah went to his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? My father and my mother, the wealth of Damascus, spoil of Samaria, will be carried away from the king of Assyria, before the king of Assyria. So you see the parallel language between 714 and what's here? A young woman will conceive, bear a son. You should call his name Emmanuel before the boy knows the two kings will be done. Here in 8, 1 to 4, Isaiah goes to his wife. She conceives, bears a son. The Lord says, you should call his name before the boy knows how to cry. My father, my mother, the wealth and spoil will be carried away. See the parallel? So the immediate reference of who this son is and who this young woman is, I think, is 
Isaiah's wife and son. That name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, um, means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. So that's a sign that God is with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. So it's kind of like, did, did anyone actually call Jesus Emmanuel when he was on earth? No, they called him Jesus. But he was God with us. So Maher Shalal Hashbaj was really his name, but he was, a, he was symbolic of the fact that God was with his people. Okay? So <clears throat> Ahaz took matters into his own hands. He paid off Assyria with treasure from the Lord's temple to deal with those two kings that were threatening him. Okay? And Assyria came. They listened. He listened. King of Assyria listened to, uh, to Ahaz, marched up against these two kings, dealt with them. So Ahaz could have thought, hey, my, hand, my plan worked. He could have thought, you know, I masterminded my own deliverance. But God wanted to make sure there was a living sign that it was him who was in charge, not Ahaz, not Assyria. Okay, so yeah, Ahaz, Judah were delivered in the short term from the threats of Assyria and, I'm sorry, Syria and Israel. They had gained some worldly peace for the moment, but they had forfeited their souls. So the sign of deliverance actually becomes a sign of judgment. Okay, so Ahaz and the people of Judah were not firm in faith, and so the judgment of the Lord that had been warned, warned of would come. Look at point number three. Because you were not firm in faith, here's what's going to happen. Verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Here's what the Lord's going to bring upon you. He's going to bring upon you the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle. This shows how much more powerful the Lord of hosts is than the Lord of Assyria. He can just say, and Assyria has to bow and come, whether they know it or not. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor. Okay, some weird metaphors here for us, to our ears, but the point is, it's a, it's a pretty you know, poignant metaphor of what's going to happen. I'm just going to shave the land. Judgment. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they get, he will eat curds for everyone who's left. That sounds like abundance, but really it's a sadly abundant provision for the poor type picture, okay? The reason why there's an abundance of milk is because there's so much free-ranging pasture. The land's going to be depopulated, and there's just no more competition, okay? So, Listen to the way one commentator, Barry Webb, summarized the situation. By the time this child has reached an age of accountability, within a few years at the most, the land will have been so devastated and depopulated by Assyria that cultivation will be impossible. The survivors will have to exist on the products of a few animals they have and any wild food they can gather, like honey. So in that day, again, more picture of judgment pervasive judgment, 23. Every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. 
abundance to absolutely nothing. With bow and arrows, a man will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. It's just going to be desolate. So this pervasive unbelief, this persistent unbelief is going to lead to pervasive judgment. Okay? That's what Judah will get for trusting in the king of Assyria instead of the king of the universe. So there's an important lesson for us here, now that we kind of understand the historical background, it's actually point number four. Misplaced trust is like taking a tiger by the tail. Look at verses five to eight of chapter eight. The Lord spoke to me, Isaiah, again, because, of, because this people, and here he's referring to the northern kingdom, Samaria, northern kingdom, because this people have refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin, the son of Remaliah, that's one of those two kings. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria. He's bringing up the king of Assyria and all, its, all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It's going to sweep down to the southern kingdom, to Judah. And it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So do you see the big picture of what these verses are saying? The Lord is telling Isaiah, because the northern kingdom has rejected the Lord, okay, the waters of Shiloh represent, these gentle waters represent the Lord's leadership of his people. Instead, they rejoice over their king, Rezin. Their trust is in an earthly king. So therefore, the Lord is bringing against them the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are going to overtake them like a flood. Okay, so the rejection of the Lord will result in overwhelming judgment. That's exactly what happened in 722 B.C. And he says to Isaiah, this flood will then sweep on down into Judah as well, southern kingdom where Ahaz was. So Ahaz thought that paying the Assyrians to be Judah's bodyguard was a wise move. Okay, Kind of like the gingerbread man escaping his pursuers by hitching a ride on the back of the fox to cross the stream. Hey, I made it. Oh, it's getting deeper. Well, just hop on my neck, you know. Oh, it's getting deeper. Hop on my head. Oh, it's getting, just get up on my nose. That's what happened. It just flowed down and overwhelmed Judah, filling the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what began as an offer to give Ahaz a sign of deliverance Ask away. Trust me. Now, Emmanuel, this son born to Isaiah, will be a sign of judgment. And the judgment of unbelieving Judah will be evidence that God is with them, but he is, he's with them, sadly, for judgment. He's got to judge those who persistently resist his grace and treat him as if he was absent, treat him as if he was unreal. Okay, that's what happens with all misplaced trust. Okay, we take a tiger by the tail when we trust another seemingly powerful Savior instead of the true Savior. I think I'll follow this strong one. I'll, I'll let it take me for a walk. I'll, I'll hide behind it. I'll be safe here. Okay, the Lord, think about this. The Lord would have saved Ahaz for nothing. Just trust. But instead, Ahaz sent away all the treasure from the temple, all his treasure, and then ultimately it cost Judah everything. 
So this is what happens when we take matters into our own hands, when we turn from God and turn toward other so-called deliverers, whether we trust in ourselves or we trust in someone else that seems to be strong, seems to be able to, to give us what we want or protect us from what we fear. So do you see how, again, let's make sure this isn't just a history lesson, that move, that idolatrous move, we do that when we lie, we take matters into our own hands. We fear the cost of honesty, and so we take matters into our hands. We trust ourselves, but you know what? You grab that tiger by the tail, and eventually he'll come around and bite you. Same thing with cheating. Same thing with manipulation. Same thing with flattery. Why do we do these things? Because of perceived threats. What if we tell the truth? Our boss, our spouse, the IRS, etc. It'll be too costly. I can handle this. No, the Lord says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And you know what? Sometimes our schemes work just like it did for Ahaz, for a time. But then the tiger will eventually turn on us. Okay, God with us, Emmanuel, that's true. But will his presence with us be for rescue or for judgment? Is his presence with you is that a comfort or a threat? So do you see these, the contrast here between the gentle waters and the flood of the mighty river? In the face of the threats, like let's say you have some threats in your life, financial, vocational, whatever it is, and, and you, want, you need a powerful deliverer because this is dangerous. Stuff could happen if I, if I don't get this worked out. And trusting in the Lord oftentimes just seems like this weak little meandering stream. Well, that's not going to do anything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> Let's get walked on. Sometimes the mighty river seems more powerful. Like, you know, we're really going to get somewhere. Going to get things done. Use this to our advantage. So the strength of worldly ways seems powerful and certain, but then it turns on you. And look out, it's a flood. So the way of God sometimes seems weak. Oh, but it's gentle. So there's lessons for us here. This is the nature of idolatry. What you serve and think that you can control will end up controlling you. What we think is we think we can use the idol. Ahaz, I could could just use Assyria. But then it ends up ruling us. It ends up overtaking us. Okay? So, think about that contrast between weak, seemingly, gentle waters of Shiloh that they've refused, and they chose instead the mighty waters of Assyria, the seeming weakness of God's ways, the seeming strength of the worldly ways seem powerful and certain. And let's look at the final, the ultimate sign that God has given. A sign will be given, Emmanuel. So we fast forward the tape. You know where we're going here. But we need to savor this. A young carpenter was engaged to a young woman, a virgin. 
named Mary. And before they came together, she told him that she was pregnant. So you can imagine what he thought. So he planned to kind of end the engagement quietly and move on. Matthew 1.20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then about nine months later, an angel of the Lord appeared to some shepherds out in a field near Bethlehem. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the Christ, the Messiah, lying in a feed trough sounds, sounds like a pretty weak beginning. God with us? This? Or what seemed like an imposter Messiah hanging like a condemned criminal on a Roman cross? Sounds like a pretty weak ending, pretty pathetic. God with us? This? But, remember, gentle, <laughs> gentle waters of Shiloh, the way of God. This Savior who said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. And learn from me. I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So the Lord did give us a sign as deep as the grave and as high as the heavens in the Lord Jesus. He most certainly moved heaven and earth in the incarnation, in the cross, and in the resurrection. I mean, can he give us any bigger, greater, more miraculous, awesome sign than the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of his son? So, do you want a sign that God is with us to deliver us from all the threats that dog us? We're superstitious people. I did this when I was a kid, but we still do this as adults. Okay, Lord, if, if you really came into my heart, make the, make the curtain blow. But we still do it now. Does he love, he loves me, he loves me not. Does he really, is he with me? What are you looking for? What kind of sign are you looking for to know that God is with us? What does God need to do to convince us that he loves us? Give you a parking spot when you're trying to finish your Christmas shopping? Oh man, we do that kind of craziness. Are you kidding me? Just avoid it altogether, and then it's a lot easier. Um, not allow you to get the flu this winter? Is that how you'll know? Get you out of financial hardship when he wants to teach you 
that the secret of contentment is that you can do all things through Christ, loving you even by keeping you in that hardship. We are so fickle. We are so, what have you done for me lately with God? We vacillate between Ahaz's prideful faux humility, this kind of stoic refusal to take God at his word. I wouldn't ask God to do anything like that. And then maybe on the other hand, a pharisaical kind of presumptuousness, show us a sign, then we'll believe, which is not really a show us a sign. It's the signs you've shown aren't good enough. And guess what? That'll always be a moving target if if we follow them. Both betray our unbelief. So let's just look past our stupid unbelief to the God of signs and wonders. Emmanuel, God really with us. I think we need to repent of any sentiment that the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection just quite aren't enough to prove that he loves us, that he's with us, that he's for us. Any sense that all the promises of God being for us aren't quite enough, that him being with us It's not enough. Listen, facing crises is not reason to call God's with usness into question. It's the context in which God wants to prove his with usness. Listen to Ortland again. It's the book of the month, by the way, if you don't know who Ortland is. It's a commentary on Isaiah. It's excellent. The Lord is appealing to us here lean on me, and you will stand. We need to think this through again and again because living by faith in God rather than by faith in ourselves takes time to catch on to and we lose focus quickly. Conversion to Christ is only the beginning and how do we learn but in our crises? That's when God takes the training wheels off our bikes and teaches us to ride like the big kids. God is saying, in your crisis, when it counts for you, trust me, I will keep my every promise. But if you treat me as unreal, you will not connect with reality at all. So this is a call to faith. This is a call to believe, Bethel. Let's trust our sign-giving God. He moved heaven and earth to prove his reliability. So not trusting God in the crisis is the crisis. Crises are where faith is needed and where it's proven. The greatest crisis is actually unbelief. That's the most dangerous and destructive thing. So I'm reading this book about, um, it's called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's this woman who's an English professor, tenured English professor at Syracuse. Okay? She was a lesbian. She was like leading the charge. She was doing really well for herself in it, very successful. And you know what? God showed up. (laughs) And it's a beautiful testimony of how he saved her. Um, So maybe that story will come another time. But one of the things that really hit her when she was growing in faith and, and trying to see what this new, you know, devotion to Jesus meant for her in her life. Basically, everything just came crumbling down. All of her world came crumbling down as she trusted Christ as her Savior. So, 
she was given a book by a friend in her church, and this line hit her um, really strongly. Unbelief puts circumstances, unbelief puts circumstances between itself and Christ so as not to see him. Faith puts Christ between itself and circumstances so that it cannot see them. Unbelief puts circumstances right here between itself and Christ so as to not see him. They're too big. They're too much. Faith puts Christ between itself and circumstances so that it cannot see them or we could say that it can only see them through Jesus, God with us, for us, walking through those difficult circumstances. Okay? So, it's really good news. If we trust the Lord, just simple act of faith. (laughs) The God that we trust in is so willing. Ahaz, ask away, you skunk. Ask away. So, don't think he's not willing. (laughs) And if you need any more proof, he, he rent the heavens and came down and took on flesh. God with us to convince us that he would move heaven and earth to bring reconciliation and all of his promises to be ours forever. That's the gospel. And guess what? It's very fitting for us to be preparing for the table, to participate in the table this morning because the Lord God loves to give tokens of his love. He loves to give tokens of his with us-ness, his for us-ness. And every month when we participate in the table, these are tangible tokens that he is with us and that he's for us and that whatever the threats are, he's bigger than those. And we need to be oriented to know that his greatest sign of him being with us and for us is not a parking spot or our health or our you know, account balance or whatever. It's the cross. It's the incarnation, the cross, and the resurrection. And we need that reminder, don't we? Because those things get really small and our circumstances get really big. So once again, by his grace, as we approach the table, we need to welcome and receive these tokens of God's presence and let the bread and the cup Show us, remind us, be a taste that through Christ, through his incarnation, through his death on the cross, in our place, through his resurrection, destroying death and the grave, conquering it, God is with us and he's for us. So if the men could come forward, we're going to prepare our hearts to participate in the table of the Lord.